Hello, hello, hello. So, yeah, this is the last one of these classes before Christmas break. Oh, okay. Right. I figured it would be. So, if you guys, if people are interested, don't answer right off the top of your head. Just think about it. If people are interested, (laughs) then what we'll do is we'll keep going in the spring and uh, just keep going. There's a lot of CS Lewis to cover. Yeah, did you guys get the email that I sent out? Um, I Maybe. I sent out some e- some things to read. Oh, the essays, um, yeah. There were essays, no? I okay, you got I read one of them this morning, so. Okay, well, which one did you read? The Mythic Facts. Okay, so you guys have not read Love Story by Douglas Wilson? No. Oh my gosh. I don't think so. I, I'm doing good if I get You don't have to explain, it's all right, Anne. <laughs> I'm good if I get in there once a week. <laughs> it's not something I jump on every day. Well, we have this sort of uh, intersecting ideas now because we've been talking about the modern paradigm right. for quite a while. And C.S. Lewis's answer to it was the medieval cosmology. Right. I remember that. Now, I think we're all used to the Ransom Trilogy. How does uh, his medieval cosmology come into the Ransom Trilogy? If anyone is familiar with those books. Have you guys all read the uh, Ransom Trilogy? I know, you got mm-hmm. gloves on and everything. I have that, actually. Hello, Laura. Hi. Are you cold? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> is that a rhetorical question? It is a rhetorical question. You did not need to answer it. Well, I think before we start, Dexter, we pray. Of course. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your wisdom to men. I pray that you would just guide our time and open our ears to hear the good things of CFS. Amen. Amen. All right. So I've now decided I needed a little, just a moment to determine what direction we were going. Okay. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm not taking my hands out of the closet. What's that? No, no, see, that's why you have this massive Bible. You no, I'm just trying to keep them warm. I can't use my hands. Did you stop? <laughs> Romans, Romans 1. Okay. So, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Lewis's massive, his biggest contribution to theology proper. Now, he made a lot of good contributions, okay? His arguments about the faith generally, the arguments about the Trinity, all great. But, we come to something called revelation and mythology. Okay, so he he in, I think added um, something to our comprehension of what revelation actually is. So in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I'm sure we've all memorized, just kidding. Chapter one, Wait, section I, I one. Did you did as a kid. Yeah, there you go. It says in the Westminster Confession of the Holy Scripture, although the light of nature and the works of creation. Okay, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Okay? So you can look at nature and learn a great deal about God. But what can, can you not learn about God from nature? His character. Well, that's actually not true. That's the part you can tell. Okay. Okay, but what can't you tell? His plans. His, his plans, right? You can't look at nature and determine that there is Genesis 315, 
this promised son that's going to come and deliver us, right? You can't stare at nature long enough to learn such a thing. So nature teaches us that there is a God. The way I explain it is, but it does not teach us his name. He has to tell us his name, right? What did Moses say? Who are you? He says, I am who I am. So the, one of the first things he reveals is his name. And this is what you, you, why you need special revelation. But natural revelation, as we see in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, so we can see his invisible attributes. Think about that for a moment. We can see his eternal power. We can see his divine nature in nature. Now, there are a lot of arguments about how far you should take this. I actually think you should take it a great deal further than generally reformed theologians, pastors do. Natural revelation, natural law is very useful. And C.S. Lewis makes, it, makes great use of it. It also says in Psalm 19, 1 through 4, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Dot, dot, dot. And it goes on to explain. Okay? So the heavens declare the glory of God. Remember, this is what we were talking about with the medieval cosmology. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a symbolic worldview. So they understood that everything they looked at in nature was a symbol <coughs> for God. It, it, it taught them God's divine nature, his power. And so they had a whole worldview with symbols, right? <clears throat> so in their, the medievals, as they're trying to reconcile what they see with what they learn, right, from all these various books, they're trying to figure out the, the world in which they live. Now, here's an example of what I mean. If you are standing out at night and you're looking up at the sky and you see that there are craters on the moon, what might you think those craters are? Why are there craters on the moon? Because it was Swiss cheese. Because it was Swiss cheese. <laughs> Only in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Okay. Because of maybe um, asteroids that had hit it? Okay, well that is how a modern would say it. An asteroid that hit it. Um, now here's the question. Why are, there, uh, why are they on both sides of the moon? Why are there some on the Earth's side of the moon? If, it's some, if, if what has made all those divots in the moon, things that come from outer space, why are there divots on both sides? Because if you look at where the moon is, based on where it, it's a relationship to the Earth, it would be very difficult for something to hit it that, that came around the Earth, right? So... Because that side always faces towards the Earth, yeah. right? Yeah. So. Uh, I think so. See the same side so the moon yeah. doesn't rotate yeah. like we do? Like this? Uh, no, it doesn't. Okay. So we always see the same side. Gotcha. So this, this is what I mean. Like, so they, you have a medievalist looking up at the moon, thinking there are, there, it looks like that thing has been war-torn. And there are uh, divots in it on both sides. Well, they assume there are divots on the opposite side. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know. What they did know is there were divots on our side. Well, what could possibly have caused this? Well, they're, so they look around... <coughs> But then they go to scripture, and what do they learn from scripture? The snake crawls around on the earth, right? So it's of the earth. 
and it went to war against the heavens. And so the moon is this object that was in the way of a battle between the heavens and earth, and it got all torn up the way that it did. And they would, this is actually what they would explain. This is how they would explain it. It's pretty clever. It is pretty clever. Now, it is absolutely contrary to the way we would describe things yeah. at this point, right? Because we all know what caused, well, we think we all know yes. what caused the, the divots on the moon. I would argue that we don't really know, though. Because, again, my question remains. Why are they on both sides of the moon? Yes, Laura? Do we know if the heat is on? Oh, the heat is on. <laughs> doesn't feel like it yet. I just want the things we know. I'm just thinking about that. Yeah, but the thing is, there are, there are two offices that have the heaters in them, where they really pump out the heat, and if the doors are closed, then the heat doesn't. So let me check on that for you, Laura. Thank you. <laughs> I thought that's it. I'm being a wimp. You know, I lived in Tajikistan. We didn't have heat. It was like this in our house. You know? yeah. <laughs> so this, this is an example of how a bunch of these ideas about the medievalists are coming together. They look at their world and try to figure it out. They, they have um, the Bible. They have pagan literature that they've gathered. And they're trying to just make this holistic view. So the fall affected everything below the moon. This is the line, the demarcation line. Everything above this is unfallen. Everything below this is fallen. This was sort of the battle line. This is the silent planet, as they call it, because up here, all these other planets are, are singing, right? It's this um, great symphony in the sky. And this is why they call it the silent planet, because ours is not singing. <laughs> because we're encircled in this fallen, right? You have to get out beyond here to get to the heavenly realm where things are not fallen. So the, and the further up you go, the, um, the holier things are. Just like when you go into the tabernacle, the further into it you go, the holier things are. <clears throat> Does this make sense so far? Okay. So, this is... Um, the point of all of this is this is what C.S. Lewis is thinking about when he weaponizes this idea. He, too, wants to resurrect this cosmology, not because necessarily he thinks it's truer than ours, but because of the imaginative effect it has on people. But what you find is, is, is the idea that the moon has craters because there was a war between heaven and earth. People, modern people, find it to be very silly. And that's what this article was that I sent out called Love Story. So it's, a, um, it's written by Douglas Wilson, and, and the part, part of his argument is that we have lost the ability as um, Western Christians to tell good stories, um, partially because this kind of thing, um, like what I've just described, no modern, most modern people would think is nonsense, right? Just like uh, the fact that uh, unicorns is one of his examples. Now, do you guys know that... If you, he actually has uh, several references here. Contemporary translations certainly do not use the word unicorn. No, but they should. They say an ox. Yeah, they say here, Deuteronomy 8.15, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein, oh no, that's fiery serpents, I'm sorry, hold on. Yeah, Numbers 23.22, God brought them out of Egypt, he hath as it were the strength of a unicorn. <laughs> so there is a word that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they would use the Greek word for unicorn. Then what you have is modern people will change it. 
um, and they don't say you import. What we have in Hebrew is a word that nobody knows what it is. Yes. Okay? And so when they translated it into the Septuagint, apparently they had some idea then, at that time, what that word meant. Mm -hmm. And they translated it into unicorn. Into unicorn. Or, That's the argument. Yeah, so right. we don't know. We've lost the meaning of that Hebrew word. Well, see, but I would say that it is unicorn. It is a unicorn. We don't. Well, we don't know, but but then you get into how do you really know anything, Laura? <laughs> <laughs> because this is what I find very interesting about this. So, I'm not arguing that, Mike. I'm just saying yeah, we so, really don't. Right. No, we really don't. No, I'm with you on that. But what, but what I find when it comes to arguments like this is it highlights the difference in the modernist worldview that just dismisses anything like this as nonsense, right? There's no way that the moon has craters because there was a war between earth and heaven. There's no way that unicorns could be in the Bible, some would argue, because that's nonsense. That's a fairy tale. Um, and, and, and what I find fascinating is, is exactly this. So in, there's an author named Cetesius in the 5th century BC, and he, he was a, a Greek court physician and he says, there are in India certain wild asses, which are as large as horses and even larger. Their bodies are white and their eyes dark blue. They have a horn on the forehead, which is about a foot and a half in length. And he goes on from three other historical works, Greek historical works, including Julius Caesar's, to talk about the fact that they all use the same Greek word for unicorn. They talk about unicorns and they describe them. Now, I'm not arguing for the validity of unicorns, even though there were unicorns. <laughs> what I'm talking about is why is it that moderns feel like we just translate this word away, right? Why, why do we why do we not deal with this issue? The, boring because we're boring. <laughs> no, we, we think it's nonsense. We think it's nonsense. Yeah, and I mean, what what is a little clearer is the idea of flying fiery serpents. So, um, you know, when they describe all the angels in heaven. They, they look like, you know, sometimes they have what appears to be the face of, say, an animal, mm -hmm. but they're winged, okay? And so you have various animals in the class of angels. Mm -hmm. and, and this, so what is Satan? Well, he's a fallen angel. Well, why does he come like a snake? Well, he looks like a snake because all the angels look like animals of some Well, like I said, I think it's, we say snake, but serpent, and serpent. a serpent to, is more of, that's almost like a snake to me. In my head, a serpent looks more like a dragon. Yes, and, and the word in Hebrew originally could mean these various things. What it's come to mean only is, is snake, but that's not true. And when, when they're wandering in the desert, they, they, there are these fly, flying, fiery serpents that come and bite them. Well, what is a flying, fiery serpent? I mean, <laughs> okay. And I mean, this is then my son would be, I could get him in here and he'd go on this long tangent about how this is what the dragons were, or the well, dinosaurs. We always call them dragons in my house. We don't call them dinosaurs. You call them what? Dra uh, dragons. Dinosaurs we always refer to as dragons. So when Titus gets out of his books, he like he gets his sharpie out and he starts crossing things <laughs> off <laughs> and rewriting them. Anyway, so the whole idea about all this fancifulness, right? If if you go back to C.S. Lewis's conversion, he was a modernist. He thought all right. He thought the Bible's full of this fairy tale nonsense because it's nonsense. But what did Tolkien convince him to think about? How did, how did Tolkien convince him to reconsider this idea? He told him to read it as if it were a storybook, like, a myth, like a, another mythology book that he, from another culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's a, a mythology book from, from another Middle culture. Eastern culture. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, if you read it like that and let it work on your imagination, the Bible actually has a very different effect. Okay? So just like when you go and you read Lord of the Rings, I think when you're going, like Gracie's doing it now, she's reading through First and Second Samuel, and, and she said it's like reading Lord of the Rings. Um, or the Hobbit, and, and and that's what I'm like. Yeah, okay, good. We're winning. The classes are winning. <laughs> this is what we want her to think. Okay. Now, Lewis called natural revelation iconography, a language of images, which gives meaning to the ideas that God reveals in other ways. This is where we get into his very unique. He, he actually took natural revelation and added mythology to it, and he starts talking about this iconography that exists in the world. So why is it that every culture has a flood story? Well, because there really was a flood. Um, now, modernist, modernists, especially, um, what's his name, uh, Joseph Campbell. So Joseph Campbell is a modern philosopher. He's an atheist. And he uses the fact that all the myths are similar to disprove the Christian story. <laughs> right? Lewis and Tolkien did the opposite. Um, now, Joseph Campbell taught at the University of Southern California. His greatest disciple and student was a, a man named... Anybody? George Lucas. So George Lucas took the monomyth ideas from Joseph Campbell and made Star Wars. That's why when I was in college and we were studying Joseph Campbell and the monomyth, we watched Star Wars um, and then The Lion King. Because those two stories um, teach the whole concept of the monomyth. And, and so Lewis and Tolkien go the opposite direction, right? Joseph Campbell, he was the one who came up with the... Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah, the Hero with yeah. a Thousand Faces. Like all, all good stories have a, a real common uh, structure yeah. to them. And Still yeah. yeah, and if you, like, if you take Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and Star Wars, A New Hope, and you lay them over plot point like plot wise, point, yeah. they're like perfectly aligned. <laughs> and, and most monomythic stories like that do. Because the, what he determined was there's this programmatic way to write a story that will connect with people. Yeah, you, you switch up all the element, whatever the elements, right? It could be a wand or a lightsaber. Who cares? It's a stick that he gets from a, <laughs> from a mentor. From a mentor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so this was C.S. Lewis's idea of this iconography. So he, he, myth became fact was an essay he wrote about the fact that. All this, this idea that myth actually became fact. This idea of a dying God who, who comes back to life descended out of heaven and, and the myth actually that we were all telling about this God became reality. Um, and that is a unique contribution of Christianity because in our central creed, the Apostles' Creed, we mention right, a Greek <laughs> officer that we can actually go into secular history books and find out about. Why? Well, because we're, and, and we're not talking about myth anymore. We're talking about facts. We're talking about historical facts. So the mythology of, of fallen man, right, the, the food that we weren't supposed to eat or the fire we weren't supposed to get and we stole, whatever, you go and you fill in all the details of all these various myths, the, the story it was always telling was the story of Christ. And C.S. Lewis considered this a, a form of natural revelation. He said, yeah, it's because they're all fallen. Um, there's, there's some truth in everything that, that the pagans are saying. Now, do you guys agree with this idea? If you go back and you read, say, um, the mythology of the Egyptian gods, is, is it possible that there could be some natural revelation in those stories? Could they be talking about things that are true, even if they aren't real? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay, I would argue that you can't. 
Um, Gracie's reading them right now. <laughs> it's really funny because my kids are kind of shocked by how pagan pagan literature is. Because I think part of the problem with classical education is that um, we, we, we forget very easily that they are, in fact, dirty pagans. <laughs> and I remember this years ago when I was teaching at Providence. We, we went to this, um, we took all the kids to this, I don't know, what was it? At the oh, Seattle yeah. Center. Uh, yeah, it was... Um, On Pompeii or something. It was some exhibit. Yeah. Okay, so then in the middle of this exhibit, right, they have all this statuary, they have all these artifacts and all this stuff. Well, in the middle of it, they have a, they have a brothel. So I waited until all the kids went away, and I was like, I've got to find out why what this is all about. So I go in there, and there's all this, like, extremely erotic art that was never, that weren't found in brothels. They were found in people's homes. But they, they, they collected it all in this place as if if you went back in time you would have found these things at a place of ill repute but you wouldn't have you would have found them in people's homes wow. well so i was like why are they lying to us about these people because the stuff was really grotesque it was really grotesque so we have to be very careful right beware of greeks bearing gifts because um you, right this is the whole idea about plundering the egyptians you, you can take things that you don't really want um and try to work them into your iconography but C.S. Lewis, this is why in his stories in, about Narnia, would go back and use all these different things. This is why he has, you know, um, he has Greek gods uh, at one point. What's his name? The guy who drinks wine all the time. Bacchus. Bacchus, yeah. Bacchus comes into the story. And, and one of the girls says, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable around Bacchus unless Aslan were here too. <laughs> right? So C.S. this is C.S. Lewis's idea. I would not be comfortable around Greek uh, mythology without Christ with me. And, and so this, this is um, the power of story to teach a worldview, the, the power of iconography. Uh, he was not afraid of using whatever iconography was available to him in order to tell a good story. One of the examples of that is when he, um, you know, the seven heavens, he's got the seven planets, um, and the king of the planets is Jupiter. Okay. Or Jove. Okay, so joviality. When Jupiter is close to the Earth, anyone born under the star it, uh, is a person who's going to be very jovial. His color is red. Okay, so we know this about Jupiter. So now we've discovered, because of Michael Ward, that the seven Narnia books are the seven heavens. So you go to the line in which in the wardrobe, and you're visiting Jupiter. And so this is why in it, there's all this joviality. This is why the color red plays such a prominent role. And um, what's really interesting here is uh, in Shakespeare's day, you were not allowed on stage to use the name of God. You could not say God, God the Father, Jesus Christ. If you go and you look at all of the, the works, they don't say God. So Shakespeare, being a classically trained man, had to come up with some way to talk about the king of the heavens, Jupiter. So he would say, by Jove. So this is where that I, this, this phrase comes from. So they would talk. So Shakespeare and the medievalists, because Shakespeare is a medievalist. Okay, I understand he wrote in the whatever 16th century, but he, like Milton, is somebody who's still part of the medieval iconography. So he used Jupiter as a stand-in for Jesus. And so this idea that C.S. Lewis would do it is not shocking to us because what he, he was a professor of medieval literature. <laughs> And so he, he stole this idea. And, and it just helps reinforce this, this whole idea 
Because how is C.S. Lewis going to go out and, and write an apologetic fairy tale and talk about Christianity without talking about Christianity? Right? That, that's his whole thing. So th there's like lots of secularists and pagans who read the Narnia stories and later find out they're Christian and are kind of angry. This is like, oh, you tricked us. Yeah, he did trick you. Yeah. <laughs> because you get into this atmosphere where it's beautiful, right? At, who doesn't love Aslan? And then, you, and then you find out he's a type of Christ. I mean, they're all obsessed with this idea of joviality in, in the wild and which in the wardrobe. And it has an effect on people's affections. Um, and, they, and, they, and then the argument by desire, they start to desire the things in Narnia. People want to be a Narnia, um, even if they're pagans. And then, what, and then the trick of the whole thing is that, oh, well, what I'm really describing is Christianity. Um, and, and this is, I think, why his stories are so powerful. He did the same thing with the Ransom Trilogy, but I think it was a little more obvious. Okay, so his whole, another idea that he stole from medieval, the medieval um, worldview is that the true art of art is hiding the art. I'm sorry, the true art? The true art of art is hiding the art. Oh, hiding the art. Yeah, gotcha. so you don't, you, you hide what you're doing. You don't let on. And I think when it comes to the line, the Witch in the Wardrobe and the Narnia series, he did that, exactly that. This is why there was a mystery for decades. Nobody understood what, what is the through line to these stories. And, and you go back, and he's taken all this iconography from all this mythology, and he's using it to tell a Christian story um, in, in the form of a fairy tale, which is very, very different than what Tolkien was trying to do. Right? What, was, what was Tolkien's motivation? I suppose, for writing The Lord of the Rings. You guys know very much about Tolkien? Not really, actually. <laughs> oh, was that, he was, well, I think with C.S. Lewis to some degree, but to, Tolkien was, wasn't even trying to, like, write a, a, a like, an origin story for, for England, essentially? Like, yeah, yes. Like so he was right, so England, he did not feel had a mythology. Like, um, like Arthur was actually not a yeah. Anglo-Saxon, Something about, something about yeah, so he, the whole story of Middle Earth is actually England. And they've discovered in Maudlin Library. No, I forget what college he was in. Okay. Well, the library that he used to use, they actually discovered that there is these atlases where the, 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 the map of Middle Earth is lifted right off of a map of England. So he took like this small area in England and he just blew it up to be the size of like a, you know, North America or Russia. You know the Russian continent, and so it looks like this massive continent, but really it's just like this little area inside England, uh, in the mountain ranges and everything. You actually lay the the maps over one another, and they they fit perfectly and turn them. But his his thing was that man is a maker. We are made in the image of God. God is a maker, therefore man is a maker. So myth making is a, is a responsibility that all humans have. We're supposed to make myths, um, and so Tolkien is writes this entire epic, massive mythology that that he created because he felt like that's what he's supposed to do right that's what a, a real artist is supposed to to create mythopoetic literature you create this mythology um you create a world the way god creates a world and you know everything that happened there and if you read uh Tolkien, you're like yes he clearly knows everything that ever happened anywhere in this in this universe lewis had a slightly different idea his idea was um, it had a lot to do with how he himself was converted. He took the pagan mythology that he loved and Christianized it. 
which is something the medievalists would have done, right? Because they, their whole idea was taking Greek literature and the Bible and mixing the two things together. Is this, is this making sense? So if you have Dante's Inferno, you have Milton, uh, Paradise Lost, you have uh, um, the, what's the long poem about the dragon, St. George and the Dragon? Um, I can't remember. There's a list, okay? So if you go from, there's like a, like a category of literature that I think fits, and, and it's from Dante all the way down to C.S. Lewis's Narnia. That's like a whole category. Then you have a different category of people where, I, and this is where I think Tolkien is really take, doing something very distinct. He created the entire universe. Yeah. And, and I think that's very, I, I can't think of another author who's done it, like, done it or done it that well, yeah. right? Um, one, one of the reasons I hate Harry Potter is because she was just making it up as she went, and you can tell. Like, why doesn't everyone have a time travel machine like Hermione does in the third book? Why, why isn't Polyjuice Potion outlawed? Like, if you guys know anything about the stories, poly, apparently all you need is Polyjuice Potion, and you can do whatever you want because you look like anyone. <laughs> and, and, and does anyone ever feel that way when you're reading those stories? It's like she gets herself into a jam. And so what she does is just invents something to get her out of the jam. Yeah. But she does it in such a way that you don't really notice. You're just like going along. You're like, oh, that's how they did it. That's amazing. <laughs> Whereas like Tolkien, he, his whole thing is like he refers to some constellation and, and the epic poem that is written about it, but never tells you what it is. It's like he knows there's all this history to everything. He creates a world. Yeah, he creates an entire cosmos. Language. And he has languages even. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Crazy. Yeah, and see, he was a philologist, so he was obsessed with language, and he thought Finnish was the, the perfect language. Um, and so a lot of his languages are based off Finnish. And for I don't really understand philology very, very well. I don't know why he liked Finnish so much, but he, he knew, like, you know, 20-some languages. Um, and so that helps when you're going to, like, create el yeah. el <laughs> elven rooms. <laughs> Like yeah, it's like Finnish, but they have pointy ears. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, part of, part of what happens, I think, when you do this, and the way I use this in my own household, is that we're constantly deconstructing stories to, to find out the myth, like, like the mythical parts of it. Um, I, like my kids always think, I think it's funny, and my, you know, I've been asked, how do you know the director meant to do that in this movie that you're watching? I'm like, oh, I have, I have no idea that was what he meant. But you can look at things like, we just watched The Village, this M. Night Shyamalan movie. You guys ever seen The Village? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the fall of man. We're talking about all these biblical ideas. And, and then my son, obviously, is like, well, I didn't know the guy was a Christian. I was like, oh, no, 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 we're just adding, like, we're finding these things in the natural revelation of this movie, if that makes any sense. And, and, and so as Christians, we're always going around looking for, the, for decent meaning in the things that we see. Um, it's very hard with modern music to do this. Because <laughs> you listen to modern music, you're like, I have no idea what they're talking about, and I kind of don't want to know. It's a little easier with movies because, um, you know, there's, just, there's so much typology and, and images, and, and things end up meaning things they didn't really, un they didn't intend. It's and a lot even, easier. With even with music, music follows a certain it follows a certain ebb and flow and crescendo. Uh, even popular music. Why do you think popular music is so popular? Because there's 
the setup, and there's the whole storytelling in there. Even mm-hmm. if the words are all misplaced and like mm-hmm. weird and misconstrued and like super sexualized or whatever, people like particular kind of music, popular music specifically, because it follows, and you can map it almost to how stories are told and right. how and how stories are follow how the story of Christ, right? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so even in music, like why it just it resonates. And when something is too weird and peculiar, like progressive music or something, yeah, yeah, it's like okay, that feels that's interesting, but it feels weird. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so there has to be some sort of connection to to the the typology we already know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis also argued that Christianity is not prim- what is it primarily? Like when we're talking about the message, of, this is why I find it fascinating. What is the central message of the Christian faith? Well, it's found in Mark one one, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, is this so? The central message is the four gospels. Okay, if you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that tells you what the central message is. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, is that a story, or is that a list of doctrines? Because modern, sec- or modern American Christians especially think about Christianity as if it's a philosophical, right? The Bible is a philosophical document that tells us eternal truths. But that's, that's actually not what it is. It, 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 you can from it determine eternal truths but that's not what it's about it's a story about a, about a man who falls and God's mission to rescue him so the whole thing is a story mm-hmm. and, and I think part of our problem is we, we don't treat it like a story we treat it like a list of facts now is Darwinism a story or a list of facts it's a story it's a story they say it's a list of facts, but that's actually not true. It's a story, right? Marxism is a story. They tell this story, this mythical story, that helps the world make sense. So this is what humans always do. And I, I think part of why Christianity loses so badly, this is the argument that Doug makes in this article, is because we've lost the ability to tell good stories. And, and, and we're losing to people with good stories. I, I mean, the self-determination... Right, of that goo that climbed out of the swamp and decided to change and decided to change and, to, and pursued change until it was a walking, talking man. That's a story that's going to capture people's imaginations, right? <laughs> but then you go to the Christian story, right? But we don't even think about it that way. You go to the Christian faith and what are we, we are doing? We talk about doctrines. We talk about um, you know, what sin is, what sin isn't. Somebody, you know, very uh, apologetics is all about, like, what, deconstructing worldview, and it's very philosophical. Rarely do we just get into a story. So do you think in ancient, so in ancient Greece that the gospel was so captivating to people because of their mythologies, and then the apostles' ability to, Paul's ability to link it to their mythologies? Yes, I, I think that was one of the things that Paul did very well, um, that we don't understand, mm-hmm. right? Because there he is on Mars Hill, and, and he's making the argument, and he's like, oh, look, I mean, you guys even believe in this God because you have this statue down here. Right. <laughs> I, think amazing, I think that's amazing. It's like there's, yeah, there's so many words that we understand about the Bible that are all actually Greek mythology. 
like they're Greek, right. Greek mythological words. Like mm -hmm. we have, I, can't, I don't have one off the top of my head, but just that application is right, like logos. Exactly. Like yeah. RK, Logos. You, you get into the, um, and you, because it's not just Paul, too, right? It's Luke, it's Mark, um, uh, Peter. You, you have these guys who were actually classically trained. Um, the, the idea that they were uneducated men is, is actually a lie. What they had not done was study at the feet of a rabbi that everyone recognized, right? Because w what a Jew thought to be educated is not what a Greek person thought to be educated. Okay, And so Peter has three names in three languages. Why? Because he spoke three languages. <laughs> he kind of had to, right? If he has a prosperous fishing business where he had it, you have got to be able to speak more than one language. And so this is why he has more than one name. So is, a, is somebody who, you know, generally do we consider uneducated people, people who can speak three languages? No, the problem that they had with them in Jerusalem was that they had not studied under the right rabbis. Mm. Right? It, so it's like... It would be somebody saying that I'm not educated because I went to Wazoo, which I'm not because I did. But, <laughs> right, if I, if I go to get a job, right, this is why the right business school is what matters. Because people don't think that you're educated because you went to business school. If you want to get a job at a good firm, you went to the right business school. And, and I think that's, so you go and you read something like what Peter, Peter was extremely educated. He, he and not only what he talks about, how he talks about it, and how he constructs his epistles demonstrate that he's extremely educated. And what I disagree with is that you, you attribute all of that to the Holy Spirit. That, that's not what the Holy Spirit was doing. The Holy Spirit was working with the education the person already had in order, right? So when you go to Philemon and it's structured exactly the way... Um, a certain exercise in rhetoric would have been done. It's not because the Holy Spirit was doing it. It's because uh, whoever wrote Philemon, is that, is that how you say the word Philemon? I think so. Yeah. That's how the person understood they should write such a thing. Okay? And, 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 and um, I, I think understanding Greek philosophically, because I'm studying Greek now, and I'm, I, I've studied philosophy for so long, I'm shocked by how many of the terms I already knew. I was like, oh, well, I know a lot of these terms. Because we just Anglicanize them, and when we when you talk philosophy, it's the same categories. So it's not it's not surprising to us that the the apostles were talking in those categories because Hellenism had infected everybody at that point, and the Jew, Jews tried to act like it hadn't, but it had. So it's a what, what what I like is it's the Greek and the Hebraic worldview smashed together is what the New Testament is, um, and then if you filter it through the Latin mind, now we're talking Western culture. Right, so um, that that's why if you go down, you, you know, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, um, those if you understand these different concepts from those three languages, which is what I have this uh, theological dictionary now. It's uh, Latin and Greek theological terms because most of us are too un, too uneducated to know them. But um, it, like you filter it through these various languages, and, and what you do is it ex you add to the meaning. You don't, you know. Some of us modernists want to boil everything down to the most basic level, right? Give me the bones. But that's not how the Bible works. That's not how God has worked, right? He, he's got this sort of like, as time goes on, he, he collects things into the worldview and, and layers the meanings with all kinds of things. Uh, that's like, what does the word love mean? Um, 
oh, it turns out in Greek there are four words that they use, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and I think part of the problem with the vernacular is that we, you lose things like that. Because yeah. I would rather know that there are four different words and exactly what they mean and then go into the scripture and see how they're used. Oh, because they're talking about love. This love is not the same as this love. Mm -hmm. And um, it's the same thing if you go into pagan literature. You know, when you read Homer, why is Homer such a beautiful thing, right? This, the, you can clearly see what's wrong with their sort of self-righteous, whiny paganism, <laughs> um, if you read the story. But the, that, the idea that there are, there are things important enough to die for is a story that, my young, that young men should read, right? And, and, and Paul had read them, and when there's references to those kinds of things, when he references Greek poets, um, it's all to the good. And they demonstrate the fact that um, God has been speaking to humanity, rather Christian or pagan, the whole time. And, and all truth is God's truth. And our job is to go and find it and collect it and, <laughs> and use it as, as we're telling stories. Okay. Sorry. We have 10 minutes now until church starts. So, any questions? Okay. Okay. Nate, you want to pray for us? Yeah. <laughs> well, I got to thank you for this class this time and um, help us to just learn from it and uh, integrate it into our lives and, uh, in a way that uh, we can talk with family members and neighbors and um, about you, Lord, uh, better and just for our own knowledge as well. Lord, pray for uh, spiritual service, pray for my sermon and for worship for you, glorify all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks, guys. I'll send out an email about when we will start up again in the, in the new year, okay? Yeah. Okay. That sounds great. Thank you.